Welcome, everyone. This is episode 27 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Tom Dwan. How were the first 26? I actually, I've never seen one of them. I need to go watch them. The first 26 were a lot of fun. I I was uh, steady on the one every 10 day kind of schedule, and then I dropped off. This is my first one in three months. Are there I, some that stand out that were real good or something? I think some of the the poker guys were the best ones. I mean, I I explicitly did not want it to be a poker podcast, so I tried to have no poker. Um, I have had Jason Strasser a couple times because he has a fascinating history, obviously. Is he still doing the same thing? Still? Yeah. Yeah, he's killing it. He's killing it. He's he's a great guy. I I had the privilege of going to his office one time in Oklahoma City and seeing his day-to-day. His episodes were very well received because people love that like poker to life transition, especially if someone's killing it. And uh, I've always brought him on during times of market turmoil. And he he loves to like make fun of all his poker player friends and, and all of their random market bets and all the dumb stuff that they do. Um, so, yeah, we usually we usually talk markets, talk talk his history, the transition from from poker to finance. And he's he's been a regular, so his were very popular. Uh, Sauce was very popular. Um, James Blake, tennis, very popular. Um, the most popular episode that I ever did was my Twitter friend, Barton Wang. His parents lived in Wuhan, and he's a very, very smart dude. He he researched coronavirus early on and we did a coronavirus podcast the first week in March. And that one had like, I don't know, 25,000, 30,000 hits. That was my biggest one. But I'm optimistic that even though I haven't dropped a pod in three months, this one is going to be uh, solidly second place to Barton. Um, my, my viewers and listeners might not know that in the poker world there are a couple of people that probably have greater recognition than tom i would say that phil helmuth and daniel negranu are more likely to be picked out by the random person in the street but in terms of in terms of moving the needle for something like a podcast or a poker tv show tom is not even in the same category as as stars like helmuth tom will move the needle 5x relative to to Phil, bless him, or or anyone else. It's true. I mean, I happen to have I happen to know the metrics. <laughs> yeah, I ha- I happen to know the metrics, and um, there there are there are two names that move the needle much much more so than any like NBA star who might go on set or the most recognizable faces, which I would imagine are Daniel and and Phil, um, there are two names that move the needle in terms of the, the metrics. You're, you're one of them, and I'm sure you can guess the other one. I would guess Ivy, right? Ivy, yeah. So, uh, High Stakes Poker is dropping this week, and uh, I believe Ivy played what? Like, all the sessions but one, and you played every single session? I think Ivy only played like three days, right, or something? I'm not, I don't remember exactly. 
but no, I think he took a day or two off. Yeah. And you and played then, every session, right? I think I played every day. Yeah. Did I show late one time or something? No, I think I played every day. Yeah. We won't talk about how, how it went down because I don't want to do spoilers, even though this is probably going to release like midway, midway into it. Um, it was a not terrible experience. That's the summary. You know, filming high stakes poker that hadn't been filmed in six or seven years. I don't know exactly how long, but something like that. And filming it during COVID. Um, you know, I, I, I think it turned out a bunch better than I would have guessed. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're like, the filming went, went off pretty well. Their testing stuff they had set up worked out pretty well. A bunch of people showed up to play. I think it worked out pretty well. So, And the results were not awful. That's our spoiler. spoiler. The, the results, your personal experience. Oh, I, I won a few pennies. No spoilers. Um, oh, what you, I don't know what, I thought that's what you were hinting at. Well, yeah, but we can't, I'm saying that it, it, it was, it was good. It was favorable. That's all right. There's one hand we have to talk about as a spoiler, because this was, this was the most interesting hand as the observer. I play in Miami at the hard rock every once in a while. And Laz plays there. You, you probably never played with Laz. He's, he's an awesome guy. Miami Laz. I played with him on high stakes poker, but I hadn't. And I've never seen him as frustrated as he was after that hand that you played against him. So I'm just going to, I'm going to go over the hand and I'm going to explain what I think I happened. Okay. I'm going to go over what I think happened. And then you're going to have to explain what was going through your mind. Okay. I think that, that you in high stakes poker, there's, there's a desire to mix it up that leads you to play far differently than you play normally, because I've seen you play normally so many times. You, you like to get involved pre-flop because it's fun. And, and so it leads you to play differently. And then post-flop, you play roughly similar to how you play. Um, so here's the hand. The hand is Helmuth opens. Laz, who has been playing pretty snug, unusually snug in this game, he three bets. Oh, he three bet real small, right? I thought he three bet. I thought he three bet somewhat normally. So here, here is my commentary. My commentary is that at the time, Phil was talking a lot, and I, you cold called with Jack Five suited from the big blind, and my read oh, on yeah. the situation was that you wanted to bluff Phil. That was that. My read was that you so desired to bluff Phil that all other poker was out the window no 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 it was just cheap man so okay. the first high stakes poker that i played um you know the, those first few times i played i think my no limit game was just quite a bit sharper than most of the people's mm -hmm. uh, the, and i think the gap was pretty big so i was able to get away with playing a bunch of hands plus it was fun and obviously like it was my first time playing on tv i was trying to play a few more hands and everything worked out um meaning every when i was bluffing you know, it would work out when I had it, people would pay me off. I just ran really good. Um, 
obviously now a lot of people's no limit games are sharper. I haven't even played much no limit lately, so my no limit game is not super sharp. Um, but these are pretty deep stacked games, and sometimes people use goofy sizes. So Phil, I think, was min raising or close to min raising, and Laz did re raise pretty small. And I don't know, I'm not saying it's winning, but if it's losing, it's got to be small. Like, it's fine to get in there and mix it up because it, it was something like, I think we're playing 4.8 and maybe it goes like 1,600, 7,000. And there was a big ante. Maybe I was just straddle. Even, I don't know. Whatever it was, it was like, it wasn't too big a deal to throw. If, if it's losing, it's like losing a few hundred bucks. And I didn't want to fold. I don't like folds. My, my thought at the time was you really wanted to bluff Phil. But the result of the hand was that Phil got out of the way and the flop came jack high and Laz went barrel, barrel, barrel. So you won it. You called it down and won a huge pot. I think he bet pretty small. On the- he he did he yeah. did bet small on the on the river. That's true. It was a it was a fun game. It was a fun game. The first day we played, shockingly few pots. Sh- shockingly few reasonable pots. Like everything was super small. It was it was a little strange. Like tighter, more studied lineup. So you just don't get as good of action. Like I couldn't do stuff like calling the jack five, but it'd be torching a lot of money. Um, so so. One thing I try to do is if I'll always kind of try to push it in games and so I'll play all the hands I think I can get away with. But obviously if you're playing a table with a bunch of people who have studied a lot lately and are playing really like tight aggressive, you can't get away with that much. Um, And a lot of the other lineups I played, you're, you know, whether I, whether the Jack five is winning or not, it's like not that bad. So I just go for those sometimes. Um, I also think the deep stacks can slow down the action a little bit. Like when you start 250 big blinds deep, I think it can, it can slow things. Well, I think that depends if you're playing people who re-raise a lot pre-flop and push people off pots with like, uh, bigger size raises and stuff. But if people are making their raises small and they're deep stacked, like you can just get in there and gamble with them, especially if you think you can stack them if you like flop two pair or something. Yeah, I was real disappointed in in uh, your do seven bluff against me. I I it was clever to call with the do seven pre against my under the gun, and then uh, well, it was it was a tight fold always, and then as it went down, it was a exceptionally tight, exceptionally bad fold, and then it and then to just add the insult where I had to pay you for bluffing with the do seven was just super painful. So in short deck, when we would play jack six or six, seven, sometimes even both, and you get them a bunch more often. So you're supposed to call a decent amount of the time. Like you, it's harder to push people off hands pre-flop. You need to raise a lot bigger. Um, And so you still sometimes shove them, sometimes re-raise them pre-flop, but you call them a lot of the time. And I think I just wasn't really paying attention. It was like, Oh, uh, okay, call. You know, I hadn't really thought through, like, what if I have do seven this hand? Am I going to re-raise Brandon? And I just was like, uh, all right, I don't want to think about it for too long. Because that's the worst is when you're playing, like, do seven or jack six or something, I've had this a few times where I'll just get a read preflop that I'm like, oh, I think this dude's, you know, 15% to have do seven. And you can just torch them. Because sometimes that'll go up to, like, by the river, you think it's 25%. You don't need much of a hand to be calling them. And so I always try to not 
not fish it and give away those reads. Like usually I don't think there's live reads where you can that often pick out someone's exact hand, except when you're playing those bounty games. Then I think there's times, you know, where, and, and so I try to not do that myself. I don't want to give it away where, where you're looking at me like, does this guy have two seven? Let me look him up, you know? Yeah, I had, I had no idea where you, well, obviously I had the complete opposite read. I thought that you were, you were quite strong and that the board developed in a nice way. Um, do you remember when we first met? Because it's so funny there, I think there aren't that many people where you remember distinctly where you first met a person, but I, I remember quite clearly when and where I first met you. I don't remember. Okay. You had on a, a gold chain, like a chain. Oh, and and you wore and and now you, you I think and, silver maybe and, and hair and hair gel and otherwise you looked like basically the same basically the same was it in Boston no you were eighteen and it was at the um, the PCA in the Bahamas and you were like hey I'm I'm Durr. We had played online a bit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. Because we hung out in Boston some after because you were teaching there when I was supposed to be in school and then failing out. Yeah. But <laughs> I didn't remember that one. PCA, that's where I – so it's probably the same time I met, like, Dave Benefield. That's when I, the, the, I started meeting the first people I knew in poker. Yeah. Well, you, I, I remember distinctly you were – you were 18. Yeah, that was, I think, the second. I had went to the Vic in London for whatever, EPT something, I think it was. Um, I think that was the first tournament I ever went to. And then the second one was PCA. Live poker. Oh, I still poker. remember I was, I think it was that trip, and I was watching hand uh, I might butcher this hand but I'm pretty sure it was JRB he was playing 2550 and I forget the action but he he it was like a single raised pot and on the end he I think he called maybe 20 something thousand it was like a 70k pot and he had ace jack on a jack high board and I was just like, what is this idiot doing? Wow, he's so bad. And then he won the pot. And I was like, what? You know? <laughs> and I was coming from online where this just like never happened. <laughs> and then I was like, maybe I should learn about this live poker thing. <laughs> but so, so you had from early stages a gaming background. Not like a super serious gaming background, but you were you were interested in games. Yeah. I like sports. I like video games. I like, like competitive stuff. Um, there are stories that have been told before you were good at video games, like not, not a competitive gamer, but you were good at video games. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I'd say that. No, I was like maybe a little better than average, but not like, yeah, I don't know. Not too good. And when it came to poker, um, it's fair to say that you 
educated the the best of your generation in the sense that that in the way that ideas flow the the direction of the flow for like say the big winners in online poker like 2005 to 2007 and beyond the direction of the flow more often than not was tom to benefield or tom to galfon than the other way is that a fair generalization or I don't know. I, I don't know that I'd say that. I mean, me and Phil Gelfond and Z and Hack Dang, uh, we, we were playing the highest stakes games all the time. And we would have it where basically if I played a hand versus Gelfond, I could ask one of the Dangs or Gelfond could ask one of them. We would never ask each other for hands against each other because, you know, there's this – Sorry, I shouldn't say never. Maybe if one dude had lost a fortune that day and one guy won a lot, you you would give him like honest advice. But there's this thing I've seen a lot in poker, um, especially in the live games, where people will be like pretend to be friends and then give advice that's bad. And whether they know it's bad or they don't care to think about it or whatever it is, you know, they don't control for that. And I don't know. I think that can cause all kinds of issues because in poker, uh, like adjusting, catching your mistakes is so important. And so you need a way of getting feedback that's, uh, that you trust that you can catch your mistakes if you're making them, you know? Um, but yeah, so I don't know if I'd say those three guys, I think I learned a lot from, um, and there's other people I would learn some from here and there, but those three, I think, I think they learned a lot from me and I learned a lot from that. In a way though, um, you're the more out of the box thinker in, in that group, but in all groups, like in, in the poker world in general, you were more innovative in the flexibility of your approach. Yeah. I mean, I'd say if you came up with a new game, I, you know, especially me and Galphon probably would have been a little better than the Dangs day one at it. And generally maybe I would have sometimes Galphon would be better than me, but maybe I would be slightly better um, at your average new game. But usually you'd need to, the learning was the important part. Like how good you are at a new game day one, isn't that important. It was how fast you learn and pick up from other people. Um, And now there's a lot of resources, you know, Galfon being one of them that went in <laughs> just decided to teach everyone poker. But there's a lot of resources out there for people to learn. And back then there weren't to, you know, it wasn't easy to, to actually get high level um, poker education. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, I would say I was one of the, first guys to go from online to live and obviously I knew I had played more hands in the last year than those guys. And there were certain, um, strategic things I knew better or concepts I knew better, but I tried to learn from a lot of the people playing live stuff that, that they knew that I didn't or whatever, you know, whether it be live tells or just stuff that happened where, you know, 
you're grumpy because you didn't get a hand for an hour. So you bluff a little more often and you don't realize it because you're not sitting at home a little more comfortable playing a few tables at once kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I would say that was, as far as I know, that was the impact I had. That was the biggest, I think, was going from online to live and then playing those shows and stuff. Now, in that transition, who would you say you learned the most from? I mean, like, it's not like anyone willingly gave me advice. Probably Ivy, but he didn't give me advice. I was just like, oh, shit, this dude's smart. <laughs> and so I would try to, like, pick up the stuff he did. Yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, there, I think there were a lot of people. But, you know, I would hear the stories of a lot of the, like, high-stakes regulars laughing at what some online people have done and i'd be like oh i don't want to do those things <laughs> like let's try to not repeat those mistakes let's try to not do them as often kind of thing so so now you play very little online poker um and your interest is primarily live and especially uh short deck right that was definitely true before the pandemic um who knows what's going to happen going forward. Um, but yeah, there were, there were pretty big short deck games going on for a while there. Um, are you optimistic about online poker in the U S a lot of people are concerned that technology has advanced to a point where online poker is, is, is troubled because of the, the power of the AI bots and the difficulty of detecting them and real-time assistance and all these sort of sorts of things maybe online poker existed in a sweet spot of time where you had the internet working well but you didn't have all of this stuff and in, some people think it's hard now do you think do you think there's a good future for for online poker so i think those concerns are valid um i i still think there's an opportunity if it's basically if the sites police it aggressively. And I think it's still dangerous and they won't get it right and they'll mess up. But um, I mean, man, people in the US love poker and they haven't had an easy way to play since it was Black Friday 2011, right? Yeah. Um, and the whole market's been warped. You know, the if you looked at the stats, um, from Full Tilt, and I think stars were similar, that it was roughly half Americans till like the year before Black Friday. And then I think it was slightly more rest of the world. Um, and basically, I don't know, I've never done tons of research into this, but I would guess that the pros were reasonably evenly distributed. And so that means Black Friday happened and you effectively shut off, you know, 40, 45% of the recreational players but you only shut off maybe what 10% of the pros because a lot of those pros moved to Canada, moved to Mexico, still play some, try to figure out a way to VPN in that kind of stuff. Like basically the game economy just got very messed up. And at the same time, the sites were not at their flushest or happiest. Um, and so, you know, rake started changing all this. There wasn't the competitive stars in full tilt back and forth marketing aggressively. You, you kind of only had stars as the only game in town. And uh, I think the whole game economy just got quite warped. So I definitely think there's a, 
a, a large opportunity coming with uh, the U.S. opening up. But I do think those concerns are valid. And so it's going to be, you know, I'm not sure which one will win out. And I think the sites will be able to sway that a bit. Who knows how much or for how long, but if they police it well, I could see, you know, there being a, a somewhat of a second golden age, maybe not quite as much as the first, but. Yeah. Well, as you say, the appetite is clearly there. So I could, I could easily see a world where online poker comes back. It's legal in more states than just Jersey and Nevada. And tournaments kind of take center stage because people realize that cash games do have these concerns with computer assistance and so forth. So, so tournaments take center stage. And then I honestly think that in tournaments, people, people don't care if they're, if they're up against competition that plays perfectly because of computer assistance or whatever. Like, I think as long as it's, it's, 10%, not 70% of the competition. I think that people, whatever, they're just enjoying online poker. They'll be relatively okay with it. And, and, and tournaments could blossom because you could get big headline numbers for first place. Like you could have just like in daily fantasy, you have last weekend, like three tournaments had a million for first on one day. Um, you could have that for poker where you have, whatever 500k for first every Sunday and and um, you could easily see see a boom I think that's a simplified take that could pan out um, and I can only share so much here but I'm gonna try to try to think and share what I can um, if the sites don't fish it I think there's a better option and I think there's a lot of things you can do to disadvantage the bots and advantage the humans. And those things aren't easy and you're gonna make mistakes. Um, but that's something that hasn't been focused on for the last seven or eight years, most places. And uh, if you, you know, I'll give you the example of Triton because it's one I'm affiliated with and I know. Um, if you try to do stuff to level the playing field, you don't need to get it perfect. You don't need to be get it, to get it great. You just make it more level. People like to play poker. And especially with all of online gaming opening up in the U.S., which I think is very likely, um, poker is a great way to get people to come to your gaming site. So I think if it's handled... Uh, aggressively and smart where it's like, here's this threat. It's a big threat. Here's what we're trying to do. We're going to change it up all the time. And we're going to try to help out the humans to level the playing field. Then I think you could have a pretty big poker boom coming, but that's more work for random executives as opposed to saying, Oh, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. Give me my paycheck. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'm hopeful, but we'll see. In the immediate future, I find it interesting that World Series of Poker, they announced that the main event is going to be online this year. They 
are adding a million to the prize pool, which is a very welcome development. We haven't. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, there there've been some there've been some good tournaments recently. Like Carrie has added to the prize pool in some in some recent tournaments. Um, but this is a very welcome development to have World Series of Poker adding and adding a million. Um, so they announced this tournament and then all of a sudden it was crickets. It was the most bizarre thing. Uh, they haven't promoted it at all. And the only thing I can guess is that because the COVID cases started to accelerate and this is a part online, part live event where the final table is live. Maybe they thought that from a PR perspective, it looked a little funny. So they decided to back off on promoting it. That's the only thing I can guess because it's weird to, to add a million and then not promote it in any way. Yeah. I don't know. I hadn't heard about that. So maybe you could just send me it and I'll check it out after. But I don't know. Yeah. Like the tournament is next weekend. So yeah, the main event is next weekend. That's what I'm saying. Like you haven't heard of it. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, the tournament is Sunday, next weekend, the December 13th. And you have to be in Jersey or Vegas or Nevada. And um, it's otherwise normal, like similar structure, 10,000 freeze out. That's so weird. Yeah, that's very weird. Yeah. So mark mark that on, on your calendar. You're playing the main event. That's very weird. All right. Yeah, I didn't realize it was... I thought this was something like months in the future. So I didn't realize it was a week away. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. And, okay, half of it is in Europe. So they they play in two days. And then the other half is in the U.S. and we play on December 13th. Maybe I'll play. I haven't decided yet. But um, then they join up at the end of December and play on ESPN to, to a winner. I'm doing their promo for them since they, they dropped the ball. <laughs> um, okay, so, so poker in Asia. We're not going to go like deep, deep into it, but I do have some questions. Um, explain to me, okay, at the table, I've seen this before. The idea that someone wins a pot and then gives the loser of the pot like a little token, like a little rebate. That's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. You're going to have to explain to me how in the culture the, the rebate develops. And have you ever seen it in an American game? Have you ever seen a rebate? There's only uh, like one group I know of that generally does that, and I don't. I can't really. Sh- okay. Share. You know, I can't really get into that. Yeah. Much, most it's of the games don't. Have. Part of the culture, like, it's almost like insulting. Uh, it's like here's a little like here's a little I token. Can't really get into that one. Sorry, that one I got to skip. Oh, the re- the rebate, the culture around the rebate. Yeah, that one I got to skip. skip. Okay, okay, okay. So, but as so for. If you're playing in the game as an outsider, you just like, is it like most of the games don't have that. You must have seen, I'm surprised you actually even saw it. You must have saw, yeah, I don't know. I can't get into that one too much. 
I, I, I like that. So, so what are the, what are the biggest differences? Let's just say, um, high stakes poker in Macau back when Macau was, was booming and high stakes in Vegas. What were the biggest cultural differences in the game? I would say. So, yeah. So, so in Vegas, if you look around, a lot of people are having a drink, trying to enjoy themselves as they're gambling. And in Macau, I don't know what it was last year, but often the yearly revenue is four or five at peak. I think it was seven times Vegas. There was a year they made like 45 billion Vegas made six or something like this. Um, maybe 48, I don't know, something. Um, the, the people in Vegas, a lot of them are trying to relax and have fun and have an idea at least that they're not favorites or don't really care if they're not favorites or something like that. And in Macau, you have a lot of people studying the Baccarat board and drinking tea and they're trying to focus and figure out if player or banker is coming next. Um, so there's just, you know, it's a different culture because of that. And you have that where even the businessmen that have, you know, lost 40 of their last 50 plays, they're still like trying to win. I don't, I don't know how to explain it because their play doesn't necessarily reflect that they're trying to win, but it's like a different element of, of, you don't have just people spewing around the same. Like, I, I don't know how to explain it. You have, you'll have, sometimes people want to gamble because they think they're going to win that hand. Or I, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to go to the, the horse track, uh, one of the two horse tracks in Hong Kong. And it's a, it's a similar uh, difference to American culture where in, in American culture, these are the ultimate drinking places like a horse track. And in Hong Kong, it's like uh, people are sitting in the SATs. It's a very, very studied environment and there's very, yeah. very little drinking. It's, it's very fun to watch. Um, and, and the poker, uh, long hours, maybe part of the cultural difference. I don't know. Like if a Chinese businessman walks up to a table, they can be scared away by pros very easily. They can be scared away by all of that very easily. But once they sit, then there's an element of competition. That's, I don't know. It's, it's a bit different. Like, I'll see games in the West where a businessman walks up, sits down for an hour, and then is like, this is boring. You guys aren't playing enough hands and leaves. And in Asia, especially if the guy's losing, that just doesn't really happen <laughs> very often. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's just some differences. It's, I don't know. I've, I haven't thought that one through that much, so I don't know how to explain it too well. But. So you've spent um... – a huge amount of time in the past six years in Hong Kong and your quarantine life was in Hong Kong, but now you're, you're in Vegas. Is that right? No, I'm in London. Actually. I was in Vegas. I came here like a few weeks ago and I'm going back to Vegas in a minute. It looks like a small hotel room by your standards. It's a, no, I'm in a apartment. Okay. Um, I thought that was a funny story back in the day when you would play a lot of online poker and you would get the, the nicest hotel room on the thinking that it improved your win rate by a little bit. It turned out. They, Where was uh, that? In, in, in London. London, the rooms were so small. 
That's why. Yeah. I would hate it when I was like cramped. If you're playing a long online poker session, I mean, I don't need a huge room. Like this is a small little apartment. I don't know, maybe 1,500 square feet or something. Probably not even that. I don't know. But you just need enough to be able to walk around for a minute. Like when you sit out for a break for two minutes, you don't want a little one bedroom place if you're playing online a lot, you know, cause often you couldn't, you can only sit out five minutes, 10 minutes back in the day. Um, so you, you want to be able to like take a break, walk around for a second, clear your head and not feel cramped in your little hotel room. Especially cause if you're doing that, usually it means you're loosening and grumpy and yeah. Now you haven't had COVID yet in part because you were in Hong Kong and Hong Kong was pretty clean while you were there. Right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I have, um, I've, never tested positive. I don't think I had it. Um, when I was in Hong Kong, the cases were, I mean, there were a few days that were triple digits, but most of the time the cases were pretty low. And uh, so even if there were a hundred cases a day, that's roughly the same per capita as if there were 5,000 a day in the U S meaning you, you know, at least for me, I didn't have older relatives there or anything my daily life wasn't massively altered other than complying with their restrictions and stuff, you know? Um, but it's a little different when, you know, the U S now has, I think it's like 175 K in the last few days. Yeah. So it's kind of brutal. I mean, it's, um, you know, I'm especially nervous about giving it to more vulnerable people. If I get it, I'm, I think I'm young and healthy enough. It shouldn't be too bad, but I'd still rather not get it. You know, I'd prefer to get a vaccine and dodge it. Um, and it's just pretty sad. You know, a lot of, there's been a lot of hardship. Yeah. So you're in London for a bit. You might go back to Vegas shortly. You might or might not be there next weekend for the main event. Yeah. I didn't know the main event thing. Um, so I'm going to be leaving here any day now. And uh, I'm actually trying to figure out, because I think I heard that they're shipping 200 million vaccines. So meaning 100 million each, Pfizer and Moderna. So I need to research it and see if that's true. But they, I heard they were shipping 100 million each by the end of December. And so if that's true, I think a lot of people want to wait on the vaccine. So I'm guessing there will be extras it'd be sweet to have one and be able to go about normal life again. So. Yeah. Yeah. That would be very, very good. I think the time frame will be a little slower, but we'll have to see. Why do you say that? Um, distribution they can take, I think it might take a couple months, but we'll, we'll see. I thought they had said a hundred million by the end of December and then a billion next year was my understanding. But I don't know. I haven't researched it a ton myself. I've, you know, talked to a few doctor friends and. Well, I guess, I guess we shouldn't get it in the last month. It seems like you play it tight, play it tight for a month or two. And that seems, seems sensible. Yeah. It's, I mean, if there was going to be a few years till a vaccine, then I guess if you're not in a high risk group, maybe you just need to accept, you know, a, a reasonable amount of risk but it's way different if there's a vaccine coming in a month. So in, in London, um, you have, you have business interests in, in the, 
the sports analytics space, like you're involved in, um, companies that, that do, uh, like back office type stuff for, for the, the legal gambling outfits. Um, we're waiting on you to make the trans we're waiting on you to make the transformation to, uh, Elon Musk status. That's the poker, the poker world is ready for you to, uh, figure out alternative energy or do, do some, some Elon Musk like activities. Um, but you're not doing that now. You're, you're a, you're a, a business mogul within the, the gambling space. Is that correct? Uh, says who? You're well. You um, right now. You're not solving the world's problems, a la Elon Musk. You're most of your oh, I'm business gambling. So for now, yeah. Okay. I don't know mogul. I think implies a, a lot more success than I've had so far. Yeah. Well, this is the it's a growth industry, right? So. Uh, that's true. That's true. You should have uh, actually, this is a, this is a true story. This is a crazy story. So we, it's almost like we don't realize how smart our, our poker friends are. They give you so many good ideas. And if you think back to it, like so many of these things you should have taken, like I'm sure you've given me a hundred great ideas that I haven't, I haven't taken up. Um, but there were a couple things that really stand out in my mind in terms of in terms of missed opportunities. One was uh, Brian Mycon, who used to run the super entertaining site like Never Win Poker back in the, back in the day when like two plus two was at its heyday. Mycon um, back in two thousand eleven or two thousand twelve. I think it was 2011 though. It was like Bitcoin was trading at $4 and he was just all over me, passionate about it. And he doesn't get that way very often. And he's a really smart guy. And the problem was that he wasn't like trying to get me involved in piecemeal. He wanted me to, to help him buy this site seals with clubs and in the process, buy like $90,000 worth of Bitcoin. I'm like, I'm like, Mike, I can't do that. I don't know anything about uh, this. It's, it's illegal to run an online poker site. I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I can't help you do that. But he's like, okay, if you don't do the poker site, at least buy a lot of Bitcoin at $3. I guarantee you, you'll be happy. And it was sort of like on my to-do list, like buy Bitcoin. <laughs> and I never did it. Um, I should have listened to MyCon. Sorry, MyCon. We could have had some fun together. And then uh, also, also a similar story around uh, about a year before that. So in 2010, I, I was commentating the show Doubles Poker, the Full Tilt Show. And... I would stay with uh, Chris Sparks and these guys that had a really fun Hollywood Hills house. I would stay in a spare room that they had when I would commentate the series and then I would go home or whatever. And so one of the guys in the house was this, this guy, Seth, Seth, Seth. And he would go on about Bitcoin and 
he would, and I never kind of got involved. I'm like, yeah, that's great. Whatever. Um, anyway, he's a legend on the internet now because you can go to these old forums where at the time that I was staying at his house, he was, he was trading like poker stars money for Bitcoin when Bitcoin was 80 cents. Oh, and even less. Yeah. About, that he would just like invest all of his poker winnings in Bitcoin. Yeah. And then he was so passionate about Bitcoin that he, uh, he just kept it all. Didn't matter. Like 5,000, 8,000, 15,000. He just kept it all. Um, so that's one category of regrets. The Bitcoin regrets. The other one was again, right around 2000, uh, in, okay, I remember summer 2012. Bob, uh says, let's go to lunch at Palm's place. So we go to lunch. He says, he says, look, um, in the, the legal gambling bill, the, the sports bill, they have a, a carve out for fantasy sports. He said, I want to, I want to back you to create the biggest fantasy sports company to do legal fantasy sports in the US. And I said, well, you know, kind of busy at the moment, but it sounds it sounds good. It's interesting. Let's uh let's keep up the conversation. Again, you know, put it on the to-do list like start fantasy sports company backed by Haral Bob. <laughs> and and uh I should have done that one. That would have been a <laughs> that would have been a that would have been a smart idea in 2012. Yeah, um, but yeah, the poker people they're they're very early and smart in a lot of ways, and uh, it's like back in the the two plus two forum days, it was like an early Reddit, right? They would they would have topics all over the map, and you would you'd learn quite a bit browsing that yeah. site. I think there's uh, poker teaches people how to think about things through a lot of different lenses. Um, especially maybe not so much if you're just learning what someone else does in already quite solved space, but more if you're trying to jump into new games and stuff and trying to analyze what to do, how to do it, or like changing game structure. Um, and so I think you can select for people who sometimes can analyze stuff pretty well. Um, I mean, I think Susquehanna has a bunch of their traders play poker, something like that, right? Yeah, at the top four, they have um, a lot of poker tables and a big part of their training is poker. And then, of course, like Bill Chin and Jared Ankenman were working there at the time that they were writing the mathematics of poker. Um, so they've done like a lot of poker research projects while they were working there. And now I'm sure, you know, they're deep in sports analytics and sports market making, and they have an operation in Ireland doing some, some sports market making. I, I don't, I don't know very much about what they're doing, but I assume that they're pretty deep in it and good at it. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I gave a I gave a speech there one time at at uh, Susquehanna, and uh, Jared guest lectured in my class one time. Matt Harvelinko, you guest lectured once, game theory. 
I remember him. Haas TV, right? Matt Harlander. Yeah, he's a professor. Now. Oh shit! Where? Um, I think in Boston, but I need to check that. And oh. Check on check on Twitter. Yeah, he kind of uh, retired at the top. I th- I'm pretty sure he was still doing a lot of winning at the time that he retired. He uh, he was uh, he was one of the the earliest guys with a fully GTO approach to limit hold'em with it, uh, and or with the most disciplined kind of game theoretic approach. And he uh, he was a big winner back in the day. And I I kind of think he retired on top in the sense that he never had a sustained downswing. Yeah, I think he won a lot. I don't know the whole story. But. So Asia, what have you've done a lot of travel. A lot of your life has been centered in Asia recently. What uh, what are your favorite what are your favorite aspects of moving moving about that part of the world? I mean usually I'm only there for a month or two. Um, sometimes even a few weeks. But I just happened to be there when the virus hit. So you know I was planning to come back and then looking like, oh, there's a ton of cases and the US is more shut down and Hong Kong, you can wake surf every day. You know, one seems better. So So okay, in poker you have your A game and then you have deviations from your, your A game, right? Sure. No, no, I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about you specifically. I'm talking about every poker player, every decision maker, whether it's financial markets or, or sports analytics or, uh, or poker, but poker, it seems to be especially important. So you see it a lot clearer. Yeah. So you see mistakes as clear or as quick in other areas. You are traveling all around the world, live a lot of times in hotels, random places, not all the time, but it's a pretty scattered life. It's hard to keep uh, a solid mental state. What, what secrets have you discovered over time for uh, minimal deviations for your A game? And I, I just, I wanna give um, some framework for people. People think of you as like, way crazier than you actually are. You're actually one of the most disciplined guys around. Like, I'll just give one stat. I remember once we talked about the the concept of like busting an online account, whether it's a poker account or whatever. Um, I remember once that you told me that until quite late in your poker career, you had it you could count the times that you had busted a single poker account on one hand, which was, is very unusual in the high stakes account, but I've seen it from you many times. I've seen, I've seen it where you. I don't think that's true. Cause I would bust accounts all the time where like, I didn't have much money on UB and when they had the higher stakes games. And so I would play my five, 10, 10, 20 on stars or full tilt and try to spin it up at 2550 on UB. Maybe it, maybe it was in the late, late career that it happened. Maybe I meant like online role overall. Pre, 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 uh, pre Isildur insanity, uh, that it happened infrequent. Like online role overall. Cause before I started playing live, I didn't have that happen. 
you know, I would bust accounts all the time, but not overall online. So, okay. The big question, what secrets have you learned over time to maintaining mental state to having, having discipline, staying close to your, your a game? I don't know that there's secrets. Um, and I think you're not gonna maintain it. You just want to catch it when it slips. When it slips, you you try to quit, or what do you do? I'll walk, have a coffee, meditate, take a shower, whatever that you know, whatever the hell works for you. But just try to catch it. Everyone's gonna have times where their decision making, their mental state slips. Um, different things are gonna work better for different people, but trying to catch that acknowledge it and then address it is real important. And in some industries, it'll show faster and cost you sooner. Poker is one of those. Um, so it's mostly just self-awareness to see when you're not playing your A game and you know, you know, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I'm not playing my A game when I've been up 40 hours and I'll keep playing those games. If I'm playing my D game and it's better than the other guy's C game, that's okay. Or if I'm playing, you know, my D game and he doesn't know what plan he's on, that's okay. Um, so I think it's, you know, some self-awareness and some like situational awareness. Um, and sometimes I've been better at that, sometimes worse, but generally I think I've done pretty well at that. Yeah. So your stamina for games, you've, you played a lot of long sessions. You feel, your stamina is, is quite good in high stakes poker. It was, it was a grinding schedule, uh, all day, every day. And you seem to have no trouble. I don't know. The last few years, I, I don't feel as sharp after, you know, 20, 30 hours as I used to, but I also haven't played too many long sessions. So that's probably part of it that I'm more like out of practice because I used to have those much more regularly. So then you get more used to, you know, where your head's at, what some tricks are, that kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, I haven't played live poker in many months uh, other than high stakes poker. So, yeah. 42 next, next week. It's, uh, I'm getting Shit. old. Yeah. Getting old. I, I enjoy the all day, every day, like high stakes poker type filming. I, the, and tournaments I enjoy as well, but when the tournaments are a series, that that can get a little trying, can get tiring. Um, so, are there any yeah. routines? Are there any routines that you try to try to keep up to stay sharp, like workout, nutrition, whatever? Um, yeah, but I'll fail at keeping them up all the time. So, <laughs> like when you do, sure you feel better and you know, feel sharper. Um, I think circling back to that stuff is, at least for me, that's what's important is like, if I, you know, these last few weeks I've been eating like shit, you know, but I gotta make sure I sit down and eat healthy for a few weeks kind of thing. Or, or when I'm, uh, if I'm the same with being lazy, not going to the gym for a bit, same kind of thing. Um, but it depends where you're at. Obviously it's gonna sting you less if you're not playing as much or not doing as difficult stuff you know the more the higher level of competition 
you're at, the sharper you got to be. So you you kind of trust your body to to recover from lifestyle deficiencies if you just if you play it tight over short periods and work out, eat well, that kind of thing. Well, I mean, I haven't eaten well for two or three weeks. I think uh, I'm guessing I'll be able to bounce back. <laughs> you know, I, if I did it for years, sure, maybe there's going to be a bunch of issues, but I don't know. So having having survived in poker, having thrived for over a long period of time, um, what are the biggest uh, pitfalls that you've seen? Uh, like, let's just say among your contemporaries who were talented at poker, also coming through at a young age, had times where the environment was favorable um, among your contemporaries. What, what are big pitfalls that you witnessed? I would say the first one that comes to mind is just ego that uh, whenever you're doing something like poker decision making like that, your ego is going to get you and it's going to sting you and it's going to cost you. And you want to try to catch it when that happens as opposed to letting it go on too long. So that happens all the time where one of, you know, someone thinks I've had it plenty of times myself that I think I'm not doing something wrong or I've got a good strategy or whatever. And someone figures out, you know, an improvement on whatever you're doing um, or figures out issues with what you're doing. And I think catching that stuff's important. Um, but I don't know. Whatever. That's a lot of poker talk. Let's talk about the election or some shit. <laughs> yeah. What's uh What's the 2021 before you started the pod, right? So I thought that was a funny one. Just the, there were so many people so sure on both sides when like it was reasonably close, obviously like Biden did win, but the Democrats still lost seats in the house. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It was from a gambling standpoint. I found it funny. Remember on high stakes, we were talking about how much money was bet on the election and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, and we were probably close to right on our estimates. What was our estimate? I don't remember. I think around around ten billion. No, I think it was bigger. I think the estimate that we ultimately came to was like fifteen billion, which I think is probably about. Right. Had to be more than that. Betfair had like a billion alone. Yeah. Um. I think it had to be way more than that bet. Yeah. Yeah. Betfair is volume though. And people can trade in and out of positions on both sides. Um, I, yeah. Um, I think 15 billion is like a sharp estimate. Like that's, but it's a very, it's a very large amount and it's, um, very interesting that, uh, it hasn't been settled that market. So people will see, um, well, I guess what, when every state certifies, that hasn't happened yet, right? So when that happens. Bedford is at Electoral College, I think. Okay. Which is in 10 days or whatever. Yeah. I mean, the price is, I had looked at it today, it was like 30 to one for Trump or something. Maybe a little more, even 34 or something. So it's getting close to them. Yeah. Um. It it has been totally bizarre. That election night was was very very strange. Watching watching in L.A. Yeah, I thought we were going to be able to do a pod that day and talk about you know 
what we thought the chances were and stuff like that. <laughs> Instead, I was scrambling the whole day. I, I got some Biden at four to one on election day. So. Yeah, I wasn't betting. I was just watching Twitter, and it was it was fun to watch the TV and watch Twitter and just follow the random conversations. And I was watching some live streams, like Chamath had a, a live stream going. I was watching that. How was it? It was fun. Yeah, they had like six people on. Very, Does he do that a lot, live stream? No, they their podcast is great. It's called the All In Podcast. And the live stream, I think that's the only one they've done during the election. Gotcha. But yeah, what's your what's your what's your outlook, let's say, for the economy or markets? Do you uh do you follow those? Like I enjoy it's funny, like Sauce loves talking about markets. So in our podcast, we're chatting about markets a good bit. And uh, Strasser, obviously. Well, what, what's your take? You probably have a better take than me on what the outlook is. You know, Biden's team, how, how it's likely to be for markets. Um, I don't have super strong opinions. Um, I think that we're we're on this course that is long-term disastrous, uh, but we're committed to it. We're, com <laughs> we're committed to, uh, to printing a lot of money to prop up stuff that rich people own. So we're going to play that game until it's, until it collapses on itself, which seems yeah. like, seems like a very unwise thing to do, but that's, that's the policy of the moment. I don't see it changing. Either. I mean, I, you know, it should change, but I don't, at least I believe it should change, but the reality is I don't think it's going to change. Yeah. What a stupid system though. What a dumb system. <laughs> what, like, what a dumb system where we have these crises every few years and then we just print a bunch of money and give it to rich people and then like pretend that it's all okay because the S and P makes good prints and it's, it's like, it's the dumbest system of all times. Like the politics of it deserves to fail, but that's, that's what we're doing. So, uh, I don't know. I guess my outlook is that we'll continue to do that until, <laughs> until it breaks. It's my so I mean, I think you could go a bit more than hundred percent GDP without too huge of problems, right? Like Japan went to 230, but they have a, a lot of, or 250 or whatever. What, I don't know what is that now, but I think 230 or 250. But a lot of their debt is owned uh, domestically and culturally. It's like a little different, but still most of America's is owned domestically also. Not quite as much as Japan's, but, you know, I think we can go past 100% before the, like. that that is, That's not the constraint as I see it. The constraint as I see it is um, political first and foremost, that, that it becomes increasingly apparent to everyone that this is the strategy, print, print money, uh, support assets that rich people own. And uh, as you're printing money, the, the lower 75% of the income distribution, their incomes don't go up, but the prices go up. And eventually this leads to political disaster. Um, 
So I think that's constraint number one. And constraint number two is uh, inflation that will come at some point, in particular, just like inflation and just everyday consumer prices. And uh, the thing is, inflation technology is keeping the consumer inflation down a lot because you know, when you just look at how many technological advances have happened uh, in the last decade or two, understandably, it's easier to get goods to people. And I think that, I don't know if you want to call it deflation, but whatever the price reduction from technology, I think is outweighing inflation currently. Um, and that's why the CPI and stuff isn't really going up much. But if you look at, you know, if you look at assets rich people own, yeah, inflation, there's a bunch of inflation. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that technology is fully deflationary. The uh, Amazon effect is very deflationary. But, but over time, the uh, parts of the uh, economy that are strongly inflationary will just become a bigger and bigger part of things like Healthcare, the costs inflate year by year. That becomes a bigger share of things. Education, childcare, services generally. Like those things where, where productivity gains are slight and technology doesn't come into play, those will just become become more important. And and we're we're just we're so willing to push the envelope in terms of extreme deficit spending and extreme money printing that um, to me it's just we're on a path where we're, we're gonna do it to a more extreme degree year by year. And we're just going to test it until it breaks. So it is what it is. How do you see it breaking though? You see it breaking politically? Yeah, most likely just because the, um, well, I think there's a lot of willful blindness on the part of wealthy people that own the assets and they, they, they like don't really understand what's going on. Um, so they're, they don't see the, uh, the injustice in it. Uh, um, and, and so, um, because they don't see anything wrong and a lot of the policymakers either don't see anything wrong or, or pretend that it's the best path for them, whatever. Um, they we're just going to do it until it breaks. And, and we're, we are so committed to like basically boomer retirement accounts to more than boomer retirement accounts, like pension well-being and, and the whole system of financial assets slash retirement saving. Like we're so, we're so committed to the optics of that, like what the actual nominal values yeah. are. Um, there's an optics thing at play there for sure. And the underlying, the underlying weakness is, is real because we like, we've always known that, uh, that demographically when the first of the boomers started to retire, uh, around the middle of the last decade, like that, that, that would be a wave of entitlement spending. And, and that's, that's what's in the backdrop of everything. Right. Um, also, like for state and local governments, that that stuff, state and local pensions, is in the is in the background. 
Um, so you're you're basically walking uphill because of because of ongoing entitlement expenses. Um, so yeah, so I think the outlook is pretty bleak. But in terms of what a person should do to protect themselves, I think look, people are doing it now. They're like uh, getting an asset that will do well in the event of inflation, like Bitcoin and gold and that kind of thing. So people are doing like what they can do, I guess, to protect themselves. And they they probably, they pile in stocks more than I would just because I guess that also can serve as a, as a haven during inflation. Uh, yeah, I mean, stocks are still, stocks are still gonna do reasonably or whatever, right? If you have income coming in, then your income is going to go up as inflation goes up. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of that, a lot of that is, a lot of that is priced is, is priced in assets currently, right? Like a lot of it, a lot of the way the market prices things now is for what the world will look like five to 10 years from now. Uh, a lot of very yes. valuable companies like the, whatever the draft Kings of the world and, the, and a lot of our big tech companies, they lose, they lose a lot of money, but we we look well forward. Um, well, the S and P is pretty high compared to historic uh, numbers, right? I had checked it a little bit ago. I think it was getting up there. Yeah, depending on your on your method, you could argue that it's the highest ever. Um, really? Depending on your method. What method would that be? So it gets a little tricky because you have the concept of like cyclically adjusted earnings um, where you try to normalize earnings across an earnings cycle. And it would be, it would be according to those ratios that, that current valuations are, are at the highest level ever. What's an earnings cycle? One year? Well, it's, it's, it's a little bit, tough because like we haven't had a cyclical downturn since we came out of the 0809 financial crisis um so you hit the depths really quickly and hard in 09 and then you and then you slowly came out of it and there was no cyclical downturn pre-covid um so like the concept of the cyclically adjusted earnings has become problematic. Um, but yeah, it would be a simple way to think of it is valuations are very high today because at, at pretty peak cycle earnings, if you're taking pre COVID earnings and looking at today's uh, prices, the ratio is high, even though that you're at top of cycle earnings. Um, the poker world, who knows, maybe they're smart with, uh, being, being still in Bitcoin at these cra- crazy high prices, but it seems to me like metals are a better play. Who, who knows though? Who knows? You love gold for like 10 years. Oh yeah. I love gold. Yeah. Gold's the best. Of course. Um, I just have to restrain myself from shorting some of the most overvalued stocks. It's not. That does not does not go well at all. Strasser, you have to listen to the pod. Strasser tells a great story 
about the squeeze in uh, in potash, the pot stock. No, I'm sorry. Potash is the is the it's agriculture. Um, which one? Tilray. The squeeze in Tilray. Um, so Tilray. For some reason, all poker players decided to short it around the same time. And then, like, over the next two weeks, there was this historic short squeeze where it went straight up. And he knows some... I, I don't think he drops names on the pod, but there were some poker players that just got blasted in this squeeze. It was like, it was one of the most overvalued companies of all times at 150. And in the squeeze, it hit a peak of like 295. Okay. And, and $100 of that happened in one day. So, and poker players had just decided to go all in on this short and they got, they got smashed. It's a, it'd be fun. It'd be funny to get that story over drinks. So, so you see it as a golden time. I won't keep you for too much longer. Five minutes. Um, you see it as a golden time for the legal gambling space, sports, poker, the whole thing. Uh, I see it as a golden time for the legal gambling space. Poker could be a big part of that, but I don't think that part is as clear. You know, sports the next few years they're going to do well in the U.S. It's pretty unlikely that doesn't play out. It, there's different scenarios where it could be bigger or smaller. Um, poker, I think a lot depends on how aggressive the operators are about trying to level the playing field. Um, and there's not going to be one answer. So anyone who tells you, here's our fix, they're just bullshitting you. And basically someone who says, here's the 10 things we're trying to do. Some of these are going to work, some won't. And then we'll try to come up with a bunch of new shit. That's what you want. Um, and, and hopefully that'll happen, but we'll see. You know, if that happens, I think, I think there could be a really good spot for poker the next few years, but still undecided. So. Let me ask you a big picture question about the legal sports space. So in poker, like you have the shark to fish ratio, right? And this is always moving around and it does at different points in time become very like sharky, very predatory with a high concentration of good players. And having, having watched this evolve over poker, I feel like we've learned something for, for other gambling ecosystems like fantasy sports and and sports gambling and the one thing i see missing in commentary about sports gambling like in say analyst reports about let's say say DraftKings, which is the market leader now um the one thing i see missing is that the legal gambling space does well as long as there are a lot of fish as long as their customers are fishy don't care about uh taking bad lines or losing on the regular right but there's another way of looking at the world where if 
the consumer does gravitate to being more sophisticated. You you can get a space where the 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 legal sports book just has an impossible problem where they're trying to post for every sport every day all the lines pre-market like all your your over under spreads money lines and they're they're doing this pre-market for every sport and then they're trying to get the right prices live as well and they that problem could be truly impossible if they're up against a sophisticated clientele that's just waiting for the spots where they get the lines wrong and picking them off um do, is it just assumed that 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 sort of sharky line selector is going to be always a very small percentage of the betting population? Well, it's not that hard of a problem to solve when you're laying minus 110 each side if you just size down. So just to give you an example, if I said to you, you know, all right, whatever odds MGM or someone like that has, right? Um, you can bet at any of those for $10. Like, I don't think you could win, right? If I let you, you know, bet thousands, yeah, there's a good chance you could figure out a few areas and figure out how to win. But for $10, you're just not going to find the energy because what, you're going to try to go make 4% on your little $10 bet. So basically, you know, if you look at the UK as an example, I think it was Skybet that their average bet was like six pounds. Um, and so basically that means they just have a ton of recreational people betting. It's not as much about having slightly sharper lines than the pros or something like that. It's just, you're giving minus 110 to each side. Um, and actually in soccer and stuff, a lot of times the spreads are even thinner. Um, so I think it depends a lot about the structure. Um, but is that profitable? I'm asking as a legit question. Like, I don't know to deal with customer service and, and like fees, all this sort of stuff for $6 customers. Traditionally sports is thought to be like a, a whales business where you, what you really want is the people. That no, no, no. If, you, if you do some market research, that's not, I mean, the UK is a massive market. Um, it's like I think 2 billion pounds a year in sports. Um, and yeah, Skybet makes a fortune. I think they sold for three or 4 billion. I don't know if it was dollars or pounds. Um, some, some big number, maybe it was two, but some big number. Um, so yeah, I don't, at when those, when it becomes legal, a lot of people want to just bet 10 bucks, 20 bucks on a game. And if you're giving minus 110 each side, those people long-term aren't going to win. Some of them might, but I'm saying the aggregate, they're not going to win. Um, and yeah, it's different when it's, Americans sometimes think of pinnacle or something where yes, there's a lot more somewhat sharp action. Even the losing people might, might be fading one or 2% of the rig. Um, but a lot of the legalized places, it's very different. You know, you just have a bunch of people who are like, Oh, there's a sports game on. I want to bet 10 bucks. So. And in the UK, I guess it's true that there hasn't been a lot of price competition as as new entrants have come in, right? Like there hasn't been, they've kept that 110 or whatever the standard is for soccer relatively. No, uh, soccer actually a lot of times it's like, you know, 0 0.98, 0 0.98. So meaning it'd be like minus 102 each side or minus 103 each side. 
Right, but in, in the market in general, there's not a ton of price competition. Like books aren't trying to undercut that number. Uh, no, soccer, I think there's a lot of price competition more than any other sport, probably because it's legal in so many places and you have, you know, uh, such high turnover. So I, I could see the U.S. gravitating towards that a bit. Um, but I think it's going to be interesting to see. how A lot of it's going to depend on how regulation structured um, for now, a lot of different States are uh, coming out with different types of regulation. So licenses are slightly different. Regulatory regimes are slightly different. And if that ends up going federal or not, um, you know, I suspect New York's uh, I think allowing licenses or sub licenses or something like that. Um, and I suspect that, you know, New York or California, or maybe Texas, if any of them would fall, obviously Texas being the least likely, that the feds, there might start being a bunch of pressure for the federal government to get involved. Um, not saying it would be the next day, but just people would start seeing that revenue pie being so big. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. I wouldn't be shocked if there was some federal legislation in the next few years. But we'll see. That would be a big change. Yeah, I, th I think it's reasonably likely. And I know a number of other people who, who should have a pretty good guess have a similar view. So, well, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I'm going to do a quick turnaround on this one because high stakes poker is dropping, I think this weekend. So, uh, we'll try to get it out as quickly as possible. All right. I think this might be the only podcast I've ever done. Is that true? I don't know. No, probably not, but I can't think of another one. So maybe it is. I don't know. Wow. That's... <laughs> Let me know in the comments. <laughs> do you have comments? That's amazing. Yeah. Never, never do another one. We'll keep this as the one and only. All right. This was fun. See you soon. Uh, see you, man.